Hello from wherever you are, uh, and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the podcast that aims to discuss, dissect, and demystify the uh, frequently confusing and always fascinating world of cancer and cancer treatments. I'm Michael Fernando, and I'm joined as ever with my co-conspirator in this uh, podcast endeavor, Josh Hurwitz. How are you doing, Josh? Yeah, good, mate. How are you today? I am just peachy. Um, Today, we've got um, something a little bit different, um, something that is is less common, I guess, than uh, uh, colorectal cancer or lung cancer or, or breast cancer. And that is um, a, a cancer that has that is quite common, if you if you can believe this, Josh, very common in our home country of Australia. We have one of high, the highest incidences of this particular disease. This particular disease is mesothelioma, which some of our listeners might not have even uh, uh, seen. It's not that common, but unfortunately, over the uh, better part of half a century, I think you could say certain companies and exposure to certain uh, agents really, really led to this being being a big issue with limited limited options. Mm, yeah. Well, I think we're being uh, quite cagey about this now. So let's dive into things. Um, we we do anything here on uh, oncology for the inquisitive mind to keep up the aura of mystique, but uh, let's let's peek behind the curtain. Uh, the mesothelioma curtain. Um, so first, a bit of background. Um, so mesothelioma, as Josh was uh, heavily implying moments ago, is a, a disease that is uh, associated with exposure to asbestos, or asbestos uh, fibres or asbestos dust. And uh, uh, I think uh, uh, some of our younger listeners might uh, be a bit too young to remember the whole uh, controversy uh, surrounding this, particularly in Australia. Did you know, Josh, that asbestos was only completely banned in Australia in 2004? Which is nuts when you think about it. And even scarier is this is actually still commonly used in many overseas countries. Exactly. So um, you have, uh, I, I always had this impression that it was a, a remnant of the past, Josh, of your early childhood um, in the... In the <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm an old man. Just, that's what everyone just understand. I'm a, I'm a very old man. I just sound slightly younger than I, yeah. than I am. Absolutely, yeah. As I remind you every day. So, um, Thank you. so, so uh, asbestos um, uh, exposure, exposure to asbestos dust and fibers. But the uh, the nasty thing about mesothelioma is it's very insidious. So it frequently arises decades after someone has been exposed, obviously by which time it's too late. Um, it typically, as a result, affects patients who are who are 60 uh, years old and over. Uh, in Australia, according to recent statistics, the highest incidence, and this probably reflects um, patterns of asbestos use, um, the highest incidence was in patients aged 70, 75, 80 years old. Um in 2018 in Australia, there were between seven and 800 new cases per year, which, you know, in the grand scheme of population is is not huge, but it's still very, very significant, still a very significant disease. Um, thankfully, at least in Australia, the incidence uh, uh, has appeared to peak around this time, around 2018, and subsequent figures have shown that the incidence is starting to drop, which, of course, um, uh, comes with the... Uh, the uh, causative uh, agent being phased out. Josh, what would you say the most common trade that was exposed to, uh, that comes with a risk of exposure to asbestos is? On our, on our medical history, when you're talking about previous occupations, what, what, would, you, what would you say the most uh, common is? 
I probably think like a, a builder or a renovator or someone that does plumbing, all those things where, you know, you're ripping out internal sheets from housing or even buildings. So I think, and Mikey, correct me if I'm wrong, but asbestos in a solid form is relatively safe. You know, you're unlikely to breathe in the particles, but when you kind of crush it up or cut it or break it in any form, then it's, you know, you, you only need one fiber. That's all you mm. need. And if unfortunately that's the fiber, that could be the fiber that causes you to have mesothelioma. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's sort of talked about in a common, in similar um, ways to smoking. You know, we say there's no safe minimum number of cigarettes to smoke. Um, there is but, one. It's zero. Well, yes, yes. There, there is no safe minimum number of, of cigarettes above zero. Um, uh, same thing is with um, with asbestos as well. So you're absolutely right. Builders, um, plumbers, electricians specifically, um, which which leads to the question: Why in every MCQ is it always the poor boilermakers that end up getting mesothelioma? I feel that they must be really old questions because, like, I don't know, boilermaker. <laughs> How, how many how many proud boiler making businesses do you see these days? I mean, ironically, I always imagined a boiler maker as someone in like 18th century United Kingdom that's like building those <laughs> like big heaters in the, mm. in the basement of these apartment complex. I actually don't think that's what a boiler maker is. They um I'm, they <laughs> I'm sure we're going to get many complaints from the boiler makers union uh, uh, of Australia uh, about how we're representing misrepresenting their trade. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but anyway, the, um, so mesothelioma affects pa- uh, patients who have had certain trades. Um, I mean, there's also obviously a risk of residential exposure if you are in the house that's having the work done. Um, so you can get exposed that way. So it's not a hard and fast rule. And it's associated with a very poor prognosis. And, um, you know, in, in previous episodes, we've talked about, you know, the idea of if you have an early, uh, an early cancer that can be cut out, then your prognosis is better. That stands to reason. The thing with mesothelioma is that it is a very, very small minority, small even by oncology and, and onco- oncological surgical standards uh, of cases that are resectable. I don't think I've ever seen a case of mesothelioma that has been resected and recurred, Josh. Have you? I have not. Not, not generally something that we see. And so today we're going to look at um, uh, two studies in the area of mesothelioma. One is old um, from 2003. Uh, the other is much newer. But I guess uh, a, um, a bit of case, a bit of window dressing, as we always tend to do on this podcast. Um, so you have a patient who, as we have said, is 75 years old, a former, let's say he's a former Boilermaker, big burly man who's impressive in every way, don't sue us, Boilermakers Union. And... Um, <laughs> And he comes to you sort of saying, look, I've got increasing shortness of breath. I'm very, very fatigued. I've got this chronic dry cough. And, uh, you know, one thing leads to another and he's diagnosed with mesothelioma. The subtype mm-hmm. is important, as which, we, uh, which we'll come to talk about soon. Um, but he, he has unresectable, as is always, metastatic mesothelioma. Um, it's uh, the other thing to mention, I guess, before we jump into this is... Uh, Mesothelioma is frequently, but not always, a disease of the lungs. I have seen sort of abdominal mesothelioma, abdominal primary mesothelioma. I've seen it once, um, but typically it is a, a a cancer of the of the pleura. Um, Josh, you're about to say something. 
I am. Um, and one one little fun fact of the day for Josh um, is that until the, this is obviously a US paper, but I just wanted to bring it up. So until October of 2020, chemotherapy has been the only approved first line treatment for metastatic pleural melanoma since 2004. So guys, what that means You mean mesothelioma? What did I say? You said pleural melanoma. I meant mesothelioma. <laughs> that's oh a different goodness. podcast, Josh. You're living in the past. <laughs> I am living in the past and obviously that's fine. So just to clarify, <laughs> mesothelioma, there was there was six like 16 years, guys. So 16 years between any change in treatment. And for someone who has mesothelioma, look, that that's, you know, there's no way they'd, they'd reach from A to B. We're going to talk about that um, that chemo study that uh, you mentioned. Um, and and you're absolutely right that from that until 2020, this was really the only advance that had been made in in mesothelioma. So uh, very uh, unfertile. What's the barren uh, ground for for studies and evidence? So this is a study made by, and I'm going to completely butcher this name, apologies, uh, Vogelzang et al., Vogelzang and Associates. Uh, it was published in 2003, and uh, it was comparing cisplatin chemotherapy, platinum-based chemotherapy, um, with or without what was uh, at that time a very new chemotherapy, pemetrexed, which is an um, antifolinic um, uh, antimetabolite. Uh, it enrolled patients who had had unresectable confirmed mesothelioma who had been previously untreated. Um, patients uh, had to have a life expectancy of greater than 12 weeks. The average, I think, around this time was about six months. They had to be over 18, obviously. It's very difficult to get mesothelioma when you're younger than 18. I'd love to see that. They had to be good from a functional perspective. They had to be able to keep chemotherapy or, or um tolerate chemotherapy, I should say, and they couldn't have um, uh, disease in the brain, which, again, I haven't seen, Josh. Have you ever seen uh, CNS metastases to um, from mesothelioma? Look, I haven't, and I just I wonder why, because it's such an, a terrible cancer that maybe the, the actual sequelae of having the cancer is so fast that it doesn't get to a point where it spreads to the brain. It's yeah, just... But- the pancreatic cancer syndrome, something else gives before it gets to, has a chance to get to the brain. Unfortunately, yes. And, you know, uh, Mikey, with all the patients that we've seen with mesothelioma, these have been really active, healthy, you know, people that come in and they've just shed kilos and they're cachectic and they're skinny and they're just at a point where, because it's such an insidious disease, they get there like, you know, Josh, I can't breathe. I don't know what's going on. Mm, yeah. Um, so we've got, uh, in, in terms of this chemotherapy study, we've got, um, a comparison of two chemotherapy regimens. The primary endpoint was overall survival and the secondary endpoints were progression-free survival, time to, um, treatment failure. So, um, when in practical terms, the treatment actually stopped working, uh, overall response rate and, um, duration of response. The median age was 60 years old, uh, as is frequently the case with mesothelioma um, uh, in the real world. 81% of the patients were male. Um, As Josh said, um, over half of them had a Karnofsky score of greater than 90, so very, very fit, very active. Uh, In terms of the subtype, um, which I might as well just mention now, um, 
the uh, close to 70% were epithelial, which is the subtype associated with a relatively speaking, of course, better prognosis of, I think there was a, a less than 20% of patients had uh, the bad um, subtype, which was sarcomatoid, which I know Josh will talk about with his study. Um, and the almost over three quarters of patients had stage three or stage four. So as mentioned, unresectable. The results uh, in comparison to our, in comparison and contrast to our recent uh, melanoma um, study, this is, this makes for gr- very grim reading. Um, so the median overall survival was 12 months in the patients who got cisplatin and pemetrexate. And that was uh, a, a huge improvement, relatively speaking, because the patients in the control arm had a median overall survival of nine months. I think that just shows how bad this disease is, that, you know, I'm sure people um, uh, were jumping up and down for this uh, three-month uh, in- improvement in overall survival. Uh, the one-year survival in the cisplatin pemetrexate group was 50% versus 38. Progression-free survival was almost six months versus almost four. Uh, the tumor response rate, this was much more impressive, was 41% versus 16%. And if you look at the if you look at the Kaplan Meier curves, um, all of all of the patients were almost uh, were almost all had almost all passed away by the age of, uh, by 15 months after enrollment. So if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, they are, they are pushing zero um, by 15 months. So there's, there's almost no survival, which, which again is, is very grim. Um, so that's really, I, I don't really have too much to say. I think uh, on this occasion, I've drawn the short straw. We try and keep it even here because um, Josh drew the short straw last time. Um, but um, this, this as, as sort of grim as it was, was the standard of care for almost 20 years for mesothelioma and, and largely due to the fact that there was nothing else. Now, practically speaking, and Josh, please uh, chime in if, if you've seen something different, but um, <laughs> as you always do, but in patients um, who, for whatever reason, don't get immunotherapy, which is the subject of your trial, um, I've seen more frequently patients get carboplatin, which is similar but different um, platinum-based chemotherapy with different um, uh, toxicities um, than cisplatin. And in my reading for this episode, I couldn't really find a good amount of data or, or, or robust data for for use of carbo um, pemetrexed um, as opposed to cisplatin pemetrexed. Uh, all I could find was um, small phase two studies. In in the real world, are you seeing more people get carboplatin against cisplatin or versus cisplatin? Yeah, look, it's a really hard one. I think a lot of my experience, even somewhat recently, has been either second line immunotherapy, so that second line immunotherapy, or they're at a point where they don't really have that option. I think. You know, I've seen people have cysts and a little bit of carbo. I think it's boss dependent, but I do wonder whether they're choosing carbo because it's a tiny bit nicer as a drug. You know, you've got to think of things like, you know, ototoxicity, those sorts of things or other sort of things that might prohibit them from cisplatin. Um, but ultimately, so uh, just this is in the context of our discussion, but second line, you can, if you've had chemo, you can use nivolumab. Um from memory, um, I've seen that happen uh, in the second line setting, but this is obviously we're talking about first line treatment when we're going to talk about immunotherapy. But most of the time, if they're fit enough, 
they're going to get immunotherapy these days. There's going to be some rare contraindications and it might be due to, you know, severe immunological, you know, rheumatological condition that's uncontrolled. Maybe that's something that you'd be thinking of. But even then, they're starting to treat that cohort as well and kind of manage those toxicities. But ultimately, if you can't manage the immunotherapy, you're not going to be able to manage the chemotherapy. Mm. Well, I think that segues quite nicely into what you're going to talk about. Um, so, I know. so, so, so we're at a, We've got a very low bar that we have to clear, an important bar, but a very low bar to clear. And so, why don't you talk to us about the Checkmate study? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mikey. So, you know, this is the this is a game changing study. We talk about game changes, you know, pivotal trials, you know, practice changing trials. They all mean the same thing. There's something that's actually slightly worthwhile to use. But this was the first line. Ipinevo, ipilimumab plus nivolumab in unresectable malignant pleural mesothelioma. Um, it was a multiple randomized open label phase three trial. Now, this was by Paul Bass, and I think it was would have been published in 2021 from memory. And a little bit of further background just on mesothelioma. Um, so we were talking previously about resectability. Generally, it's pretty much, you know, most, 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 most people who are diagnosed are unresectable. And when we look at those that survive five years or, below, or above, that's less than 10%. So that that's a poor five-year survival. Like even f- from a general cancer perspective, that's really poor. Um, what we also know is that worst prognosis is reported in the not epith- non-epithelioid histology versus the epithelioid histology. And that will come into, into discussion when we actually look at immunotherapy as well. Um, now, looking at this specific trial and the method. So this was, as I said before, it was an open-label randomized phase three trial, 103 hospitals, 21 countries, um, these are patients, they had to, they weren't amenable to curative treatment, meaning surgery with or without chemo, and had a good performance status of zero or one. Now, they had to have measurable disease. Um, again, we've spoken about in previous uh, podcasts, but essentially we have to be able to identify a lesion and then follow it over time. Otherwise, we just don't know if the, the drugs are actually going to work. Now, exclusion criteria include brain metastases unless they were resected or treated. Um, they've got an autoimmune disease. Again, that might be changing now because there's a lot of research going into if we can treat that kind of cohort of patients. Inadequate hematological renal hepatic function, known HIV infections or in- interstitial lung disease. So fibrosis or lung fibrosis or scarring of the lung is one of those potential toxicities of immunotherapy that you've got to be really careful about because let's say you help their cancer and then they can't breathe. It's not a particularly good outcome. So patients were enrolled and randomized one-to-one, and then they were stratified based on their sex, their histology subtype, um, and they were given nivolumab plus ipilimumab or platinum plus pemetrexid, as Mikey spoke about before. Now, patients are pre-treated with folic acid and vitamin B12 in the pemetrexid cohort. That's just kind of the standard because it's a antifolate metabolite as well. But look, I'm probably just going to skip through and talk a little bit about the demographics and the results because I think that that's the important thing. And that's the, that's the stuff that we want to talk about on this podcast. Predominantly men, um, I guess that's the first thing to say. So about 77% in each cohort arm was men. Now, reason for that is going back the last 50 or 60 years, uh, men obviously dominated the industries where 
asbestosis um, or you know asbestos was prevalent. But again, people who cleaned the clothes got exposed to the dust could also develop asbestosis and mesothelioma. So that's why there's still about a quarter are women as well. Predominantly, the patients collected from across the world, but predominantly Europe. Um, most had an ECOG performance status of one, which is always quite interesting, actually. So I wonder if this was people who, yeah, they've been diagnosed, but they had other issues, all those sorts of things. And then looking at the histology subtypes, so three quarters were epithelioid and then about a quarter were non-epithelioid with about 12% of those being sarcomatoid and then mixed or kind of just, I guess, other types. Predominantly, at least half of each cohort was stage four metastatic disease. Um, Very few had received systemic therapy, which is interesting. And that's probably just based on the fact of they were diagnosed, this trial had opened, you know, the existing uh, data was so poor that they wanted something that was a little bit nice. Um, So about 10% of the Ipinevo group had radiotherapy before that, and then less than 1% had had any systemic therapy. Um, they did quantify the pdl one status and probably 80% had greater than 1%. But, uh, Mikey, from my memory, I, I don't think um, we will talk about PD-1, but I think in this trial it wasn't powered, meaning we don't actually know if those that had a high PD-1 sort of represents a better outcome when you look at immunotherapy um, versus those that had, I guess, less than 1%. Yeah. Now, oh, go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say I think that that's – that there are uh, this this study does raise a few questions as well about um, who gets what and who benefits most from what, which I'm sure you'll go into. Yeah, I will go into, and this is why I actually really like this study because it just shows that we have so much more to dig out of predictors and how can we tell if someone's going to respond to treatment. So patients were collected or recruited between 2016 and 2018, about 300 in each group um, at the pre-specified interim analysis. So that's data database lock. So when they kind of stopped that, that pre-specified analysis, the median follow-up time for overall survival was 29.7 months with a minimum of 22, I think it was minimum of 22.1 months. Um, now, what I did forget to say to our listeners um, is that the primary endpoint was overall survival. Uh, it's always important to know what, what the study is looking for. Um, and the secondary endpoint is, you know, progression-free survival, um, uh, objective response rate, you know, and all those sort of other things that we are always very much interested in. This is a bit of a sad statistic, but only 2% of the 300 patients in the intervention arm who received treatment remained on treatment. So what this means is that predominantly most of them had progressed, but that doesn't mean that this trial was a failure. What it means is that mesothelioma is really difficult to treat. I think 20% was due to toxicity. So nivolumab is generally pretty well tolerated, but ipilimumab, especially if you've already got challenges, can be hard and you can get the toxicities that Michael's spoken about in previous studies, which I'll also sort of talk about a little bit as well. Overall survival, and this this is interesting. So we've got three Kaplan-Meier curves, and look, we'll leave the link for the, um, for the trial in the information. But overall survival in all randomized patients, so what we found was 18.1 months in the intervention arm and 14.1 months in the chemotherapy arm. The hazard ratio for that was 0.74%, which was statistically significant, showing that at least a 25% better overall survival, I know that's a crude way of talking about it, than 
the traditional therapy. Then we broke it down and we broke it down into, if you might remember, there was the epithelioid and the non-epithelioid tumor histology. And this is where things get a little bit more interesting. So in the epithelioid histology, the median overall survival for the intervention arm, again, ipilimumab plus nivolumab was 18.7 months and the chemotherapy group was 16.5 months. So couple of months difference but still uh, and this actually apologies this actually wasn't statistically significant so while the hazard ratio is 0.86 it did cross that that line of sort of one with a confidence interval between 0.69 and 1.08 but this is where what i love right so then you look at the non-epithelioid histology and i think non-epithelioid histology predominantly has terrible response to chemotherapy would you agree michael I, w- I would I would agree with that, Josh. I mean, it is it was the um, group that I think both in the original two thousand three trial, but also just in in clinical practice, it was known to be a poor prognostic marker. If you had sarcomatoid or non epithelioid mesothelioma, and all you had was chemo, you were almost certainly going to do a lot worse. That's it, right? So I was actually going to answer for you. So thank you for ch- for chiming in. But the median overall survival, while the nivolumab and ipilimumab was pretty similar to both cohorts, being eighteen point one months, the chemotherapy arm was eight point eight months. So that's that's a year. You get a year extra in your median overall survival with a hazard ratio of zero point four six, which is fantastic and statistically significant as well. One of the things you might be wondering is like, so how long am I going to give treatment for? So they were actually given immunotherapy uh, until disease progression, unacceptable toxicity, or for two years in the immunotherapy arm. And they were only given six cycles of the cis or carbo plus pemetrexed. So, you know, six by three, that's 18, 18 weeks. That's so like four and a half months. Um, so that's the overall survival, which I thought was quite, quite you know, this is a this is a treatment option for a historically terrible response to chemotherapy. Looking at the forest plot as well, um, people with sort of stage three and four cancer did sort of show statistical significance in response. A portion of patients with a response of at least one year or two years. So at two years, you still had thirty two percent who had a had a response at that two year mark. Right. So that's that's which great. Is, which Whereas is great. a chemotherapy arm was eight percent, which is abysmal. Um, not, not, I guess when we say abysmal, some people still do benefit from chemo, but it's also like, if there's something that's going to give her a better benefit, we will next to talk about toxicities. We would talk about this, I think every podcast, but most common diarrhea, pruritus, rash, fatigue, hypothyroidism. I actually find, you know, if they don't get the colitis or, you know, the inflammation of the bowel, I find with a lot of my patients, fatigue is actually a really common real-world outcome for immunotherapy. Would you agree, Michael? I would say it's in some ways the most common in that, mm. yeah, it, it is it is the one that is the hardest to pin on immunotherapy, it's, but it's the one I see most commonly. It's the one I've told patients is, is the most common. That's it. And uh, the little description I always use with my patients is like, imagine you have a new iPhone and it lasts a day and a half for its charge or an Android if you're you're on that side of the fence. And then you go sort we of don't, we don't three years later. 
I'm not discriminating. You could have whatever phone you want, um, just something with a battery in it. And then you go three years down the track, right? And then it's like, oh, it's just lasting eight hours. That's exactly what it feels like when you're on immunotherapy is that, you know, you feel, you kind of feel really drained. It's like working an 80 hour week and you're like, oh my goodness, what, what's happened? Um, and look, we always check people's cortisols and thyroid tests, which can be sort of some other endocrinological side effects from our immunotherapy. But I find my patients personally, fatigue is quite a common thing, especially if these guys are young. I guess to summarize this trial is that it met a primary endpoint, which is improved overall survival with ipilimumab and nivolumab versus chemo at the pre-specified interim analysis. The two-year overall survival rates was 41% and 27%. Survival benefit was observed regardless, regardless of histology, although I think statistical, statistical significance was also, I guess we have to question that in that one cohort. The thing is, though, is that we've seen a benefit, which means this is really the new standard of care if it's available. That's kind of, I think that's really the baseline here the what was really driving the overall benefit was the phenomenal um, benefit in those with non-epithelioid epinevo just blew chemo out of the out of the water in non-epithelioid yeah um, i i i did actually mention that when i was talking about it um but you know (laughs) hopefully people were listening to me (laughs) sorry (laughs) i just wasn't listening that that's fine you deserve not not to you don't have to listen to me um but yes so when i was talking previously about whether it's statistically significant and when it's not statistically significant it means that the intervention and control arms are relatively similar um but again i guess my thing is this mikey is like if immunotherapy sure it's more expensive but i find people just tolerate it better than chemo I mean, it's in, in Australia, at least, it's approved for mesothelioma. So the cost to the consumer is... is zero dollar if, if, if absence, yeah. yeah zero dollar dues. That's the currency we use in Australia. Um, but I think in summary, I might finish it off because I got the more exciting trial this time, is that mesothelioma is a very difficult cancer to treat and there's been limited development in the last couple of decades but ipinuvo stands to be the new standard of care in the non-epithelioid subtypes where chemotherapy historically has had really poor outcomes now when it comes to the epithelioid subtypes the i guess the debate and there's probably a discussion with the specialist at hand whether you're going to trial the immuno or the non-immunotherapy being that of chemotherapy but I think there's enough data to really say you could choose either um, and it wouldn't be a, a wrong answer. It, as you, and as you say, it does come down to what you think is best for the patient. If it's someone who you think can take immunotherapy, then immunotherapy. If not, then you have chemo as a bit of a backup. Yeah, and I think the context of that is single-agent immunotherapy is very well tolerated, but ipilimumab can be difficult. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, we might uh, leave that one there. Thank you, Josh, for a stimulating conversation on uh, mesothelioma. It's it's always grim reading, but uh, important, hopefully less important as time goes on. Exactly, um, and uh, stay tuned for our next episode coming to uh, podcast us place near you wherever you get your podcasts absolutely 
<laughs> All right. Well, look, uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, and thank you, Josh. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. See you then. Bye.